It was after dinner one evening, and I was doing something with the dishes. Maybe I was cleaning them, or maybe I was putting away clean ones. I, I don't exactly remember specifically, but we had recently moved in to a new place after a transition. And this home was on a corner lot at the back of a cul-de-sac. And it was many years ago, our kids were little. Uh, but I was thinking about this this week, and this particular evening I looked up and I looked out the window into the backyard. And just over the fence from behind our house to the backyard of the houses back there, there were flames. Big flames. <laughs> uh, I was startled, stunned. I ran outside, I looked over the fence. Uh, the neighbor was there with a garden hose, but their shed was on fire. Big flames from a shed on fire. Their next door neighbor also had a garden hose out trying to help. Uh, and I immediately called 911, but soon realized I didn't know the name of the street that they were on. Uh, it wasn't our street. We were in a new neighborhood that had a little weird twists and turns at the end and the back of a cul-de-sac, and I didn't know the name of that street. And um, talk about unexpected. We had only been living there a few weeks at this time. But 911 informed me they already had multiple calls, and about as soon as the operator said that, I heard the sirens. And so help was on the way. And I did grab our hose as well because this was really close to the fence. Um, but everything was taken care of within the next few minutes. But startling. We are currently in a sermon series in the book of Exodus. Today we've arrived at Exodus chapter 3. You can kind of bookmark or turn in your Bibles or on your device there. And when we think about Exodus chapter 3, most people usually think of or remember one particular story that pops into our heads. The story of Moses and the burning bush. And I see people mouthing that back at me, absolutely. Uh, it's a, another startling encounter with fire. And while that is a memorable part of the story, it's not the only thing to remember from this amazing chapter in the book of Exodus. In our time here together today, we're going uh, to work through all of Exodus chapter 3, actually, but we're going to break it up into some smaller chunks as we go along, rather than read the entire thing in its entirety all at once. But let's turn to Exodus chapter 3 together and see how this story begins. And if you're using uh, a, a device, you can have it there. If you go to the Nova uh, app or our Nova website, uh, our digital bulletin is there, and on the sermon notes, I actually already have this entire chapter, Exodus chapter 3. You can follow along right there in the sermon notes. It's broken up into these sections we're going to use today. But our story begins, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Now back in Exodus chapter 2, we saw a bit of a jump forward at times in this storyline of Moses and his life. In 2.11, that verse began one day after Moses had grown up. And later in verse 23 of chapter 2, we also see the phrase, during that long period. And so in chapter 2, we're brought through some larger periods of time, gaps if you will, where there's not a lot of information, not a lot of specifics or details. And here at the beginning of chapter 3, 
we encounter something similar. It just kind of begins, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro. Not a lot of detail. We don't know all the specifics that got him to this point or led up to this. But we have this simple fact that Moses is now a shepherd, or at least in the role of one on this particular day. He has a flock. He's leading them. And his location, it's at least important to note and take note of. He's at a place called Horeb, described as the mountain of God. And this location does remain significant throughout the story of Exodus, but I don't want to jump ahead in the story just yet. Here at this point, we learn that something appears to Moses in flames of fire from a bush, and Moses is drawn in. What an amazing sight this must have been. Right there in front of him is this bush that's burning without being consumed. That is not at all like the fire I saw outside of our backyard that morning or any fire that I can say I've ever seen. But I'm sure it was startling because fire has a tendency to do that. Fire in the Bible is also representative of God's holy presence. It's this way here. It's this way in other parts of Scripture also. Fire will appear later in Exodus and and in other scriptures. We'll see a pillar of fire leading God's people. We'll see fire at Mount Sinai. We'll see fire in the tabernacle. We'll see fire on the day of Pentecost. When God forbids idols later in Deuteronomy, Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The author of Hebrews also uses the language of fire in describing how to worship in Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament. And fire, it's also appropriate because we know that we're kind of drawn to fire. There's something about it that draws us in. And we're also amazed by fire. You ever sat and just kind of watched a fireplace or a fire pit or one of those fire tables if you have one on your patio? It's kind of mesmerizing. I know I have. And, and I kind of, kind of like it. It's just kind of There's just something about it. So we're drawn to fire. We're amazed by it. But we also tell people something like, don't play with fire, (laughs) right? We tell our children, don't play with fire because fire is to be taken seriously. And so is God. God is holy. And here in this story, we often call it, and here it referred to as the burning bush, But actually, it's interesting that I noted this last week. One thing we do know about it is that it was on fire, but it wasn't really burning. It wasn't being consumed like something does that's burning. And it's interesting that this bush was not consumed. And we're told that in verse 2, it did not burn up. And Moses was seeing something different and mysterious here. It's a different kind of fire than he was used to. And it represents this never-ending power and nature of God. And this is probably the main thing that most people think about when they think about Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. And this seems to be what initially grabs Moses' attention. He says, I'm going to go check this out. Now, that's my paraphrase. That's not actually what it says in the text. But he says, I'm going to go check this out. But the non-burning nature of this bush, it's not actually the biggest surprise in the story. This was just the initial contact, you could say. And our story picks up in verse 4 of Exodus chapter 3. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, 
Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Here, Moses has an encounter with God, a direct encounter with God. And here we read about what I'm going to say is the call. Moses is called, actually, physically, directly called by name. And if you look at the text, twice. God calls his name twice. And our text also notes a significance about the place in one way again. God calls it holy ground. Moses knows something is up, something is going on. This is significant. And we're told that he hides his face out of fear. There's also something else I think to see in this moment. The same God that told him to stay at a distance, right? Don't come any closer in verse 5. The same God that told him to stay at a distance also addresses him directly and personally. Even though God is holy, he still approaches us and relates to us personally. That's the way we see it is with Moses. That's the way it continues on with you and I today. Let's see what God continues to say in our story as it continues in verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Verses 7 through 10. Chapters 1 and 2 had set the scene. The Israelites have multiplied, but they've become enslaved. And at the end of chapter 2, their cry went out to God. And in response to that cry going up, God here and now says, I have come down. In verse 8. And it says to rescue. God says, I have come down to rescue. Here is where God begins to reveal his plan. His purpose, he says, is to transfer his people. He wants to bring them out of Egypt. And God tells Moses, my plan involves you. I am sending you in verse 10. You see, God is ascending God. And here is the commission, we could say, in the story. Not only did he call Moses, he commissions him. And throughout the Bible, God sends people in all kinds of different ways. I jotted down a few as I was thinking through the stories. Joseph was sent to save lives in a famine in Genesis 45. Here, Moses is sent to deliver God's people. Elijah was sent to influence the course of international politics in 1 Kings 19. Jeremiah was sent to proclaim God's word. 
Jesus says that he was sent to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Luke chapter 4. And we learned about that a couple of weeks ago in a sermon from our guest speaker, Josh Buck. The disciples were sent to preach and to demonstrate the power and kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas were sent for evangelism and church planting. You can read about that in the book of Acts. Titus was one who was sent to kind of help put a messed up church back in order in the New Testament book of Titus. God is a sending God, and he commissions Moses, who, as we can see, would say of himself he really didn't have the ability, and who we can say really didn't have the right reputation either. Because if you remember the story, he's a murderer of an Egyptian. He's on the run from Pharaoh who wants to kill him. He's a stranger now in a foreign land. So he says he doesn't have the ability, and we could say he doesn't really have the reputation. And this is where our story continues in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Verses 11 through 14. There's two things happening here, I think, in this part of the dialogue in the story. First thing, Moses questions God's choice, of himself, that is. Moses feels inadequate, probably for a variety of reasons. Because of his weakness, he says, who am I? Because of Pharaoh's power, he says, that I should go to Pharaoh? And because of the task to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So Moses feels inadequate for these reasons. And it's a very understandable question to ask, honestly. But Moses doesn't need a higher self-esteem. What he needs is a greater sense of God's presence. You see, you can be a self-made person, and for a while you might enjoy it, but it's hard work. And whether you're trying to fit in at school or prove yourself in your career or keep up with the latest fashions, eventually the cracks are going to start to appear and show. And the question's always there. Will my self-made identity withstand all the pressures of life? And, and how about the tests of the divine, the afterlife, after this life on earth is done? But God says to you, just like he said to Moses, I will be with you. You can walk through life with me. You can base your sense of self on your knowledge of me. You can find your confidence and your worth in knowing me. You can know that I am with you, is what God says. And Moses here in this story, it's a picture of Israel, the nation. I think it's also a picture of us. Because we're the people who are defined by our God, now, yesterday, you may have been a great employee or you may have had a terrible day at work. You may have been a great parent or child or a selfish one. You may have been praised or mocked or even ignored. You may have been mostly obedient or horribly sinful. 
But if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are a child of God, and nothing can change that. Nothing. This means that today you can go out with confidence, not in what you do, but in who is with you. Who am I? A child of God. And God says to you, just as he says to Moses, I am with you. That's a little bit of the first thing going on in this part of the dialogue in chapter 3. Moses doubting God's choice of himself. But a second thing going on is a little bit different. We've seen that Moses has been called. We've seen that he's been commissioned. But now, Moses seems to be asking for some credentials. And I can understand this from Moses' point of view. Also, an interesting and good question. Because if you're going to go tell people that God has sent you, it's important to know who God is. Just saying something like, hey, I heard a voice from a bush, probably wouldn't be sufficient for most people. So Moses wanted to go with God's authority. And so he asks, who should I tell them sent me? And what happens next, I would say, is hugely important to understand in this conversation. Moses gets an answer to his question about credentials. He wants some credentials. But it's important to understand the credentials are not his. They're God's. That's his answer about the credentials. It's not Moses' credentials. It's God's credentials. And these days, people like to define God for themselves in all kinds of different ways. Think about it. Think about people who say things like, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Or I think God is like this. And they fill in the, the blank, whatever they might say or think. And what they're actually saying is, don't tell me what to think about God. I'll decide for myself what God is like. I'll imagine him or her in whatever way I want to imagine God. And as Christians, we're not immune to this either. We might look at some aspect of God's character or some aspect of Christian truth, and we might say something like, I don't like the sound of that. I just don't think God is like that. It might be his judgment. It might be his sovereignty. It might be his sexual standards. Whatever it is, we make God in our image, a God who suits our desires because we think of God the way we want to think of him. But if we stop and pause for just a moment, I think we would realize that doing this is almost like detaching yourself from reality. It's kind of like saying, I like to think of horses as two-legged creatures. What I want to think about horses is not relevant they're four-legged creatures. My perception of that reality doesn't constitute the reality. And it won't change the fact that they have four legs. And what you or I or anyone decides we want to think about God doesn't actually change who God actually is. God is not a concept that we shape or that we choose or that we mold. God is God. By definition, God is a reality, the ultimate reality, actually. So in this passage, God says, I am who I am, in verse 14. God is self-defining. It is God who determines who God is and who he will be and what he will be like, not us. In this statement, I am who I am, 
it's deliberately designed, I think, to, to burst our definitions. Because we normally use that phrase, I am, and we attach it to something. We'll say, I am something. I am a mother. I am a teacher. I am lonely. I am tall. Whatever it might be. But this statement, I am who I am, it circles back around on itself. Because God is not defined by anything outside of himself. The Hebrew word here, it's a verb, and it's used and it indicates an action with no particular instance in view. And I'll explain that just briefly. But it can literally be translated as, I be who I be, if you think about it that way. Because it can refer to a a habitual action in the past. It can refer to an action which is generally true in the present. It can also refer to future actions actions the same word the same verb that's used here and here in exodus there's actually good reasons for thinking that maybe all three of those senses are in view here the context of the larger story includes the ideas that the god of the patriarchs the past is going to liberate his people in the present to give them the promised land in the future but it's that same verb that's used And this brings us to something else interesting about God's answer to Moses' question about credentials. And Exodus chapter 3 continues from verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, Assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are going to the king of Egypt and say to them, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Exodus 3, verses 15 through 18, as our story continues. In verse 15, the I am who I am reveals his name. The Lord is the word it usually gets translated. But in answering Moses' question about who is sending me, God tells Moses his name. It is Yahweh. Just as you and I have names, this is the name of God. And here I'll give some, just some interesting historical notes that might help understand a little bit about this word and this name. So first thing, as time went on, the Jewish people from this time forward they would refuse to actually speak the personal name of God because they feared saying it in a blasphemous way. They didn't want to uh, bring anything wrong onto God's name. So they actually wouldn't even pronounce it. Instead, they would use the word Lord or Master, which is a different Hebrew word. It's the word Adonai. Second thing, the Hebrew Bible was originally written with consonants alone, no vowels. Interesting to think about. 
But in about the 6th century, vowels were added for people like you and I who don't know how to pronounce everything correctly. But to avoid reading Yahweh by mistake, because remember, they didn't want to pronounce it out loud. To avoid reading it by mistake, the vowels from this other word, Adonai, were superimposed over the consonants of Yahweh. And they became, in essence, a different word when they put the two together. And that's the third thing. About another thousand years after this, in the 16th century, we can learn that some, some scholars maybe mistook this combination of these two words and they transliterated it as this new word. And you might know this word as well. It's the word Jehovah. So you have the Yahweh consonants, the vowels from Adonai superimposed on each other, and it's this word Jehovah. And we can't be sure what the vowels should be as they were never actually written down, if you remember. And it's usually written and pronounced as Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, if we want to spell it phonetically. But the, the real form is just the Hebrew consonants that we would translate as Y-H-W-H. And most contemporary English translations, however, this is transliterated as Lord, not however, sorry. In most contemporary English translations, this is transliterated as Lord with all capital letters. So if you're reading in your English Bible today and you see Lord where it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's this word, Yahweh, Adonai, together as Jehovah. That's to distinguish it from the translation of the word Adonai, which is capital L, but lowercase o, r, and d. That's the word Adonai. And so that's how they handle that in some of the translations. And it's very interesting to think about, and just some historical notes about the name. But outside of the historical notes, most scholars and commentators would agree that in Hebrew, the emphasis here in Exodus chapter 3 on the I am, the emphasis here is not on God's abstract existence that's somewhere up there, ephemeral, out there that we can't get a hold of. That's not where the emphasis is. They would agree that the emphasis on the name is on God's active presence here in this situation and there with Moses. And this further stresses God's presence with Moses and with Israel. And it makes complete sense within the context. Again, God's asked a question and he answers, I am with you, past, present, future. And throughout his encounter with the Lord, Moses does something that we often do. As we tend to try to evaluate and think about what, it, what is it that God's putting on our plates in front of us? How does God want us to respond? We often leave something out. We leave out a fact that changes everything about the way we think about what has God put on my plate and how does he want me to respond? And what is it that we leave out? It's not the difficulty of the calling. It's not your perceived answer of your abilities to answer the call, I should say. It's not the size of the situation. It's not the size of your wisdom and your strength. What is it that we often leave out? I think it's the fact that the God who calls his people to do his will on this earth always goes with them when he sends them. He never sends without also going along. And when he sends you, he doesn't give you stuff to help you along the way. What he actually gives you is himself. Because he 
is what you need. And he is the only thing that can give you what's required for the task he wants you to do. And because Moses is God's child, he is never alone. Because he is God's child, God will never send him on a task by himself. Remember that when God sends, he goes with. As Exodus chapter 3 comes to a close, we come to a little bit of what I'm going to call a cliffhanger. And our story will continue in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians." The ending of Exodus 3, 19 through 21. And here Moses is given a glimpse of what is to come. But here's also where this chapter ends. And so we don't get to that rest of the story just yet. We're kind of told a little bit about what's going to happen, but we're not there yet. So I'm going to leave that part as a, a bit of a cliffhanger. The Bible is dotted with story after story of people who were called by God but who were scared to death to answer his call. (laughs) I don't want to give too much of the story away, like I said, but if you know the story of the life of Moses, you might remember that Moses did just about everything he could to get out of going back to Egypt, to get away from confronting Pharaoh, to, to get out of being that one to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. He was terrified to answer God's call even after God would do miracles to convince him of his power and his presence. And so if you ever feel afraid of answering God's call, you're in good company. (laughs) You're just like Moses. I love how pastor and author Paul Tripp writes two short paragraphs that I pulled out of one of his books about Exodus 3 and Moses and how it relates to us as well. And he writes this, When he calls, and sorry, when he says he, he's speaking of God. When he calls, he goes with you. What he calls you to do, he empowers by his grace. When he guides, he protects. He stands with power and faithfulness behind every one of his promises. He has never failed to deliver anything that he has promised. What is incredibly dangerous is how quickly we forget God and how fast our allegiance to our own purposes and plans develops. We convince ourselves that we are wiser, stronger, and more righteous than we really are, and therefore we step into danger. Only grace can work to remind us that faith in God is a resting place, and trust in self is a minefield. It is grace and grace alone that empowers us to follow and to rest. I love that idea. Faith in God is a resting place. And remember that trusting in yourself is a minefield. (laughs) God first calls you to himself. The call of God is to a person. And then he says, when he calls you, I will be with you. And we see this through Jesus Christ as well in the New Testament. Jesus himself says, come to me, 
all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest in Matthew eleven twenty eight. And Jesus goes on to tell his followers, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age in Matthew 28, verse 20. When God answered Moses' question and revealed who he is, he said, I am. I am who I am. I am with you. May you continually be challenged by the God who calls, the God who commissions, and the God who himself holds the credentials, the great I am who is with you. Amen.